Our Old Testament reading this morning is from 1 Kings in the 17th chapter. Uh, It's the beginning of a story about God's provision for Elijah, uh, his prophet, who is feeling a bit overwhelmed uh, when we find him. He's in trouble with the king, Ahab, because uh, his words have been a a little bit um, stressful to the king. So as we turn to 1 Kings 17, verses 1 through 6, I would invite you once again to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. And Elisha the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab the king, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be, there shall be, not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you will drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, For he went and stayed at the brook Kareth, which flows into the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. The New Testament reading this morning is from the Gospel according to Matthew in the 6th chapter, beginning verse 25, and continuing through Verse 33, again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Therefore, I tell you, says Jesus, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body, more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying at a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, Even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first. For the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. One night this past week, I 
I can't remember which one it was now, but it, in the night I had a dream. And in that dream, I was passed by by a person who reminded me of one of my bosses from a job that I had decades ago. Now, he was not one of the most competent people I've ever worked for, and I don't remember him really taking any interest in me at all, either as an employee or a person, which is why I was particularly surprised that he would show up in a dream so many years later, but even more surprisingly was that in his cameo appearance, the one thing that he asked me in this dream was, are you depressed? And the way I remember this fellow, that was so out of character for him that I have to imagine that he was just that, a character in a dream, a, a messenger. Interestingly, the, the biblical word for that is angelo. But I believe he was an agent of God in the subconscious, and the question that he posed was done so at this time and place, I trust, was for a particular providential reason. Though I don't think that I'm depressed at the moment compared to some seasons in my life in which I would have said that I had been. So maybe this question wasn't so much for me. It reminds me a bit of a scene from one of my all-time favorite films, Fields of Dreams. In the movie, Kevin Costner's character is on a quest to locate a reclusive author, one who was modeled on J.D. Salinger. In the movie, he's played the author by James Earl Jones. And Costner recalls reading a little-known poem that this author had written early in his career that spoke to the great American pastime of baseball. And on account of that, Costner's character believes that he has to find and take the curmudgeonly Jones to a baseball game to ease some pain that he won't admit he has all these years out of the public eye. Well, it's anything but easy, but eventually the trip to the ballpark does take place, and there, during the nighttime game on the electronic outfield jumbotron, which ordinarily displayed commercial messages or statistics about the relief pitcher who was coming in or the batter who was next up to the plate, the two of them see a very brief profile of a forgotten player from another team in a former generation. And it turns out that the message wasn't for the benefit of Costner's character, though in the end it would be, but it was for the benefit of a bunch of other folks, many of whom he had yet to meet. So perhaps the question that came to me in the night was just as much for others. Are you depressed? Well, if any of you are, I suppose it's for good reason. Uh, I, I know some of the things that you are experiencing as they are common knowledge. We're all dealing with the aftermath of another round 
of divisive midterm elections, of rising interest rates and inflation that feel significantly higher than the government reported numbers, of an increasingly acute shortage of diesel fuel, of crime in our cities and violence in our workplaces and our schools, of wars and rumors of wars, of churches in conflict and strife, of grandbabies born with genetic defects, with loved ones suddenly taken, with your own physical infirmities and those of spouses as well, of days with increasingly more darkness than light as we approach the winter solstice. At the same time, I'm also pretty sure that I don't know many of the things that some of you are experiencing, but I know that there's probably more going on with many of you. When we gather to pack our Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes Thursday night, I noticed here in the narthex an entry dated Wednesday, the day before we were here, in the guest register from a visitor who had come to our historic sanctuary to pray, they wrote. Circumstantial evidence that there is stuff going on that I don't know about. But what that message on the page also told me was that this person knew where to turn. As I spoke of in a recent sermon right here, as we continue to discern the future ministry work of Old Rehoboth, any path forward will, I believe, lead us out. It'll lead us outside. And the purpose of the church and the health of the church are, are closely related things. And a church that is fulfilling its commission, given her by her head, Jesus, is by definition a healthier church than one which is not, regardless of what it looks like. A congregation can have hundreds, even thousands of members, but if they are focused exclusively on their building, their grounds, their cemetery, their coffee hour, their budget, then they're not a healthy congregation, no matter how things seem to be going. The same thing I told our youngest about cars goes for churches. Uh, recently, as we were together cleaning out the debris in my car that had been left after a number of trips to the transfer station and the recycle center, she found a crowbar and asked me if I had recently pulled off a heist. I explained to her that there were other less felonious uses for such a tool. And then she asked me why I had a bottle of oil. No, make that too in the car. So I explained that especially with cars that have been on the road a couple of decades, like this one, they need some extra TLC to stay in tip-top shape. I then took that opportunity to tell her a parable about people and cars, and it occurs to me that the same parable can be extended to churches. Many people, when they look at a car, 
whether it is a classic like mine or something newer, are taken by that vehicle's appearance. The shiny wax job, the fancy chrome fittings, the glossy white walls, the custom sound system, but as far as I'm concerned, it's what's under the hood that really matters. That even if you have a spotlessly clean engine block under there, if you haven't maintained the mechanical bits, the car is no longer a functional piece of transportation technology. It simply becomes a piece of modern art. Really, it's what you can't see that's the most important. And that goes for cars and trucks, and it also goes for people. And come to think of it, it goes for churches too. They have to do more than look and sound good. They were purposed and made to work. And therein lies, I think, the Christian answer to depression. Spending time fretting and worrying is counterproductive. It is for the folks who do not have a relationship with Jesus, for he clearly teaches that his Father and ours not only made us and all that is, but that he continues to provide for us even to this day. So let him worry about you, and that'll free you to work for the other. And that's the way Christians individually as well as corporately are called to go. And when we go about serving the other, I think a side benefit to that is that we might receive a blessing along the way. Certainly, there's a sense of satisfaction. When we look on this stack of shoeboxes that sit on the table here this morning, we can feel good about having come together for a common cause that benefits others in a tangible way and is part of God's perfect plan for spreading the gospel message to the ends of the earth. And I would suggest that while we spend our time focused outward like this, we then spend less time focused inward, dwelling on those things that don't seem to be going our way, the things that God has already promised to look after for us. If we believe in a God, as the Gospels describe, one who knows just what all creatures need and when and how much, then we need not worry nor be depressed. Just yesterday, I was working in the yard at the manse cleaning up after the tropical storm, enjoying the last twilight of what has truly been a glorious Indian summer here on the shore, I heard in the stillness of this wonderful natural landscape we have here, the call of a wood duck. After stopping what I was doing and just listening to that for a while, I was reminded of these words from the poet Wendell Berry, which he entitled, The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, 
I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought or grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light for a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. In the sixth chapter of Matthew, we hear a much older song of a peace that endureth. A peace not just in the natural world, far more than a temporary respite from the cares and troubles of the world, but a deep, lasting, spiritual peace of peace that has the power to cast out fear, anxiety, and depression. That is what God offers through the Prince of Peace to those who would trust in Him rather than self, those who would obey Him rather than self, those who would love Him rather than self, those who would serve Him rather than self. So don't you worry, don't you fret, Don't you despair. The work he is calling us to is itself a salve for the hurting of this world. At the same time, it is also that which can heal our hearts and refresh our spirits. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. For the king of heaven has everything in your life already covered. And for that, we may truly say, Thanks be to God, and amen.